Many of you already know this chapter, so let me just go ahead and begin by reading this chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'll pick up with the last phrase of chapter 12 to lead into chapter 13. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Well, the theme of this chapter is love. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is love. The hallmark of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is love because God himself is love. In the Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ tells that by faith and hope in him, we will love the Lord our God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all of our strength. And because he has made us loving people, we will even love our neighbors as ourselves. And we respond to that by saying, yes, amen. It's very easy to say yes and amen. But it's not so easy to do, is it? I don't mean to say that you're difficult people for me to love. I don't mean to say that. And you certainly don't mean to say that I'm a difficult person for you to love. Do you? You don't mean to say that. What I mean is that it's difficult for us to love the way that God loves. And yet, that's his goal, his aim for us in our lives. Which is why scripture goes to great lengths to teach us over and over again how to love. Because we can only love God and love one another if the Holy Spirit is at work in us. Love is a distinguishing mark of the Spirit. 
And that sheds some light on why Paul has placed these words of love here in this chapter. Because in chapters 12, 13, and 14, Paul is talking about the gifts given by the Spirit, right? They have written and asked him about this, and he is telling the people in Corinth about them. And he's, he's not so focused on the gifts themselves. Not nearly as much as he is in their understanding of the gifts and their application of them because they misunderstood the gifts and they misapplied them. So in chapter 12, he grounds the spiritual gifts, not in the people who have them, but in the will and purpose of the triune God and in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Those who have the Spirit say, Jesus is Lord. And so the gifts are for the building up of the church in love. They're for our common good, not for an individual experience. Which necessitates him then explaining what the church is. The church is the one body of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is made up from many different members. All have different gifts, and all are indispensable. Because we are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We live in unity with one another, affording one another equal honor and special care. These are the things that Paul has been teaching us, which leads Paul to put these spiritual gifts in their proper perspective, again, here in chapter 13. And love is what grants that proper perspective. And we love these verses on love. We love to hear these verses read at weddings. And a wedding ceremony is a good context in which to reflect on the nature of love. That's a perfectly good context in which to read these verses, but it's not the context in which these verses were given to us. When the Corinthians were reading this part of Paul's letter, I don't think they responded by saying, oh, how sweet, how beautiful. Oh, those are such inspiring words. No. They would have said, ouch, because these verses are a verbal spanking to the unloving. The Corinthians were elevating the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of tongues, which Paul will go on to address in chapter 14. But Paul is still correcting them because they seem to be gifted with division. That's what they're really good at. They're really good at dividing the church because they lack love for one another. So Paul is showing them and us a still more excellent way, the way of love. If you'd like to follow along on your sermon outline, you'll see this sermon theme. Love is the defining mark of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the way of life for every person who has the Spirit. And Paul kind of shocks us when he says all spiritual gifts are useless without love. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Now, I read it that way on purpose. You see, the Corinthians are all about impressive speech, aren't they? They have been from the beginning of this letter. And Paul is using hyperbole to intentionally create a dramatic contrast that highlights the necessity of love against the gifts. If I speak with tongues of angels and of men, it's a poetic way of describing really impressive speech. Silver-tongued speech. Really 
pleasing speech in every language, golden-toned speech in every language. And he contrasts this ultimate speaking ability with the comically opposite sound of a chaotically clanging cymbal. Clang, clang, clangity, clang. You think you sound so good, and it sounds like that, right? The gift of tongues without love is useless, meaningless noise, Paul says. And so then he goes on to revert to the gift of prophecy. He calls it prophetic powers, because that's how the Corinthians are thinking of the grace gifts. Like they've been handed superpowers. Look at my spiritual power. If they were so prophetically powerful as to understand, and not just some, but all mysteries, and to possess not just some, but all knowledge, basically to be omniscient. Paul's saying, if you had it all, but no love, you would be nothing. That's a little different. You would be nothing. The gift of prophecy, which, which they thought made them something special in the church, without love, Paul says, makes you nothing. And if they had faith that could remove mountains, faith to the most remarkable degree imaginable, without love, they would be nothing. Again, this is, this is not saving faith, but the grace gift of faith. This remarkable faith is nothing without love. And then look what he says in verse 3. If I gave away all that I have, and if I even deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What if I gave away everything I had? Everything. Sold the house, sold the cars, gave away everything but the clothes on my back. And then I gave my body. I mean, what else do I have? If I sold myself into slavery, I think might be what Paul has in mind here, or even if I sacrificed my body for the sake of the gospel, what if I gave everything away, even myself? Could I boast then? Would it it renown to my gain then? No. Because without love, your greatest personal sacrifice is nothing. You see the contrast. It's black and white contrast. The most impressive speech, minus love, is nothing. The most impressive gifts, minus love, is nothing. The most impressive personal sacrifices, minus love, brings nothing. Do you get it? Without love, we are nothing. Now, is Paul saying that the spiritual gifts are nothing? No. He's saying that the grace gifts are not everything. They're not even close to everything. They are not the way. Because the Corinthians have been using them as the way. Look at me. Look at my gift. They are not even close to the most important thing that the Holy Spirit gives to us. Which we in the Corinthians so often miss. It's the Holy Spirit who gives to us love. You see, love does not begin with you. Love does not even begin with your love for God. Love begins with God, because God is love. Love is an expression of the very being and nature of God before it is ever an expression of his love for me. 
Listen to Jesus' prayer to the Father in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 24. Father, I desire that they, that's us, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known for this reason, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. It is Jesus' desire for us to know and experience the love of God the Father just as he knows and experiences the love of God the Father. So who is it that applies this love to us? How do we get this love? In 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 23, we read, This is God's commandment, that we believe in the, sa- in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he had commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, the Spirit whom he has given us. God would have us to love one another through the Holy Spirit he has given to us. In 1 John chapter 4, beginning of verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. We have God's abiding love by God's indwelling spirit. In Romans chapter 15, verse 30, Paul Paul asks for prayers saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. In addressing the Corinthians' puffed up notions of the gifts given to the church by the Spirit, Paul de-emphasizes the gifts and super-emphasizes the love that we have in the Spirit. Paul does not say you have to speak in tongues. He does not say that God will speak divine revelation directly to you. He does not say that your faith is worthless if you can't use it to remove a mountain. Paul says you must have the love of God within you. And that love is delivered by the Spirit of God when he takes up residence in your soul. The grace gifts are good. They build up the body. But love is indispensable. Love is the way. So what does this love look like? Well, pick up in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Paul here uses 16 action verbs to describe love. Now, English translates some of them as adjectives, like patience and kind, but we should read those as verbs, as they are in the Greek. Exercising patience, exhibiting kindness. Impatience 
puts itself first. Impatience puts itself first, while patience puts others first. When we refuse to allow our schedules to be interrupted by the needs of others, that's impatience. Patience forbears with others. Patience is willing to invest time and even our emotional capital in others. Love is kind. Being harsh, severe, or even mean to others is contrary to love. If you're doing those things, you're not doing love. Especially in light of God's kindness to us in Jesus Christ. Kindness covers evil with good. You know, unity in the bond of peace is a powerful thing. Paul says that's what the church is supposed to look like. But it is a vulnerable thing. It's vulnerable to a lack of love. See, I can learn to flex a little bit when you need me. And I can show a little grace to you when you don't show a little grace to me. Forbearing. Forbearing with one another with patience and kindness, is a great tool for maintaining unity in the bond of peace among brothers and sisters. It's really indispensable. Love does not envy or boast. You know, Paul isn't actually defining the word love, but describing what love is. And it's no surprise, really, that he spends most of his time telling us what love does not do. Everybody has an idea of what love is. Everybody has a definition of love. And Paul says, yeah, but if your definition does these things, then it's not love. Let me show you some things. Love does not envy. Love does not covet what others have. And it's not angry with others when they have it. Help yourself out. Don't play the comparison game. It's not helpful. It so often leads to bitterness and resentment, which is love turned inward on a damaging way. Cut off those thoughts in your head. Love does not envy. Love does not boast or brag. This is what the Corinthians were so good at. Self-promotion. We've, we've read it through the whole letter. Self-promotion about their spirituality. They go on and on about how spiritual they are, about how gifted they are, how well they come out in the comparison game. They continually heap praise on themselves when Proverbs says to let another man praise you, not your own mouth. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine the Corinthians on social media? Praise God they didn't have social media. Because you know what that does to us. Love does not envy or boast, and it is not arrogant or rude. Love is not arrogant. And this gets to Paul's repeated indictment of the Corinthians being puffed up. You're all puffed up. But love is other-oriented. Love associates with what the Corinthians would call the so-called lowly, the so-called weak and is not wise in its own estimation because love desires to see others built up. Love is not arrogant 
and does not act unbecomingly. Love is not rude or indecent or overly inappropriate. Love doesn't aim for shock value or unnecessary provocation. Love acts honorably, respectfully. Love measures the context and then behaves in a fitting way with others. You know those times when the people around you are just a little too formal and you're in a silly mood? And sometimes you think it's your responsibility to change the tone of the group. Well, if you do, make sure that you're not being rude or arrogant. Because love is other-focused and stays loving with a little bit of self-discipline, a little bit of restraint. Love does not insist on its own way. So love is not only considerate, but it leverages things for the betterment of others. It looks to the interests of others. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. That's Paul, not seeking his own advantage, but seeking the advantage of others. And because love does what's best for others, love totally whiffs on irritability and resentfulness. Love is not irritable. It's not easily provoked. It's not easily annoyed. It's not easily angered. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of a man does not produce the righteousness of God. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Let me ask you this, dear sisters and brothers. Are you too easily offended? Do you drive to church on Sunday morning Are you consciously rehearsing in your mind a perceived offense from last Sunday? Love works hard to not be so easily offended by not taking everything so personally and by not attributing motives to others. Those are good habits to build. Easily offended Christians are self-concerned Christians. And they easily fall into resentment. Love is not resentful. You may notice in the ESV an alternate translation down at the bottom of the page, love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love's not resentful. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. So what love does not do is simmer and stew on all the times when someone has done us wrong. It does not record and store those in a file in your brain to bring out and throw on the table when the same person does the same thing to you again. Love does not treat others that way. No. Love treats others the way God treats us. Love forgives. Love buries those things. Love covers. Love puts away. Love remembers my failings more than your failings. 
Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Which means love finds beauty and pleasure in virtue. And does not delight in evil. This is going to require adjusting many of our Netflix selections and Instagram feeds. Love loves what is good and right and true and lovely. Love does not love what is godless or impure or dark or crass or perverse. Instead, love rejoices with the truth. The truth of scripture, the truth of the gospel, the truth of what we are reading right now, that love is the sum and substance and supreme virtue of the Christian life applied. When Paul makes a summary statement in verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Paul is summarizing and applying love with these four statements. The first statement, love bears all, and the last statement, love endures all, are basically saying the same thing. Love bears up. Love can take the weight. It never falls. It always endures. And then the two middle statements are applied to how we address others in love. Love generously believes the best of others. And love hopes and desires and acts so that others would flourish in the gospel. This is how one of my seminary professors explains this verse, and he's spot on. These verbs, bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all, these verbs cannot be read to support naivete. As if one believes or as if love believes the most improbable or ridiculous things, no, it does not say that. But it is saying that love does not give way to cynicism and despair. For it believes in the God who gives life to the dead. Love believes and hopes for the best since it looks to God who can forgive sins and grant new beginnings to those dead in their trespasses and sins. So this does not mean you're to believe everything anyone says, even though you know it's not true. It's not what this says. It does not mean that love does not give way to cynicism and despair either. How needful is that in your Christian life in this world today? To not give way to cynicism and despair. Because this is not about how you feel about yourself or how you feel about others. This is about how you behave towards others. This is about the way you live your life towards others. And who is this active love directed towards first and foremost? Who's to be the recipient of our love? It's the brethren. It's the church. Those for whom Christ died. His body, your family. Jesus is instructing his disciples in the way of love in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 33, saying, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another 
Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. And again, 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now, Scott, does this mean that we have no obligation to love people who are outside the church? No, of course not. And you already know that. You already know it does not mean that if you have the Spirit. You love those outside of the family of God by the grace of God who has been moving in you and making you a loving person. You don't love others because they're added to the law and you have to obey. You love others because by grace you have been made a loving person. And so by grace you love all people. That's why you love them. Dear Christian, by the grace of God, you've been made a loving person. For that reason, the weight of our obligation to love is towards one another, the family of God. That is the evidence that the love with which we love is the love of God through Christ by the Spirit. People outside the church don't love the people of God, don't commit to the people of God, don't serve the people of God. We do. So church, how are you doing at loving one another according to Paul's description of love? Just, just you right here. You know, as we partake, or we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes and we evaluate how we love one another, as we run our relationships with one another through this filter of loving well, is there a person that comes to mind that you need to give some attention to? Now, I'm speculating, and it's based on my own experience, but I'm speculating that no one here looks up from these verses and shouts, boy, I really love well. So is your pastor. Can I tell you to continue to take this description of love and to take the priority that we are to give loving attention to one another and ask you to not let unloving thoughts, attitudes, and actions corrupt our love for one another. But instead, do the heart work of having loving thoughts, attitudes, and actions towards one another. And in this way, build one another up in love. And preserve the unity of spirit and the bond of peace in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom he loves.
Now Paul returns to the matter of spiritual gifts in verse 8. And he explains why love is the greater and more excellent way of living the Christian life. Look at verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So those words, love never ends, is probably more precisely translated, love never falls. I think that's what the, the Greek would tell us. It's not, it's not just a time duration of love, but it's a quality of love that bears up, that endures, that never fails. And because of that, love never ends. But the spiritual gifts do end. There is a time in which the grace gifts operate, and it is followed by a time in which the grace gifts no longer operate. And it's not a failure of the grace gifts. It is a God-ordained transition in time. And the time change is clear in these verses. It's when Christ returns. It's when Christ returns. Why? Well, in verse 9, Paul explains that the grace gifts build up the church in the knowledge of God, but our knowledge of God now is only partial. It's partial. When Christ returns, we will see him face to face, and our knowledge of God will be more complete. That's the distinction. Remember, just because we do not have complete, total, comprehensive knowledge of God does not mean that we don't have genuine knowledge of God. We have genuine knowledge of God. Your Bible contains everything you need for a life and godliness. And by faith in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you do know God genuinely, really, actually. But you don't know him fully, not yet. So Paul illustrates this point in a couple of ways. You see, childhood is different from adulthood. When Paul was a child, it was appropriate that he spoke and thought and reasoned like a child. But when Paul became an adult, those things were put away. Because in childhood, we operate with partial knowledge. And in adulthood, by the grace of God, we operate with greater knowledge, right? Apparently, one of the industries Corinth was known for was making mirrors. Not like the mirrors we have today. They were made of highly polished metal. So your reflection in the best of mirrors was still just a little bit fuzzy, a little bit unclear, a little bit dim. It lacked clarity. Not like you're looking at somebody directly, face to face. Not like that. But the time is coming when we will see God face to face. The time is coming when we will stand before Christ and see him face to face in the light of his glory. So what is revealed to us in the grace gifts, partially, will be replaced by complete clarity when Christ returns. 
And we will see that the new heaven and the new earth is not a place for the old grace gifts, as helpful as they are now. But the new heavens and the new earth is a place of love. And so then Paul ups the ante in verse 13. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul ups the ante. He raises the stakes, if you will. He's no longer comparing love, which never ends, to spiritual gifts, which will end. Now he's comparing the way of love to the way of faith and the way of hope. How does love compare to faith and hope? You know, I I think I was taught this, and I think I used to think that this verse was saying that like the spiritual gifts, faith and hope will also pass away, leaving love the undefeated heavyweight champion, right? Maybe you did too, and I can understand why. The Bible tells us that the righteous walk by faith and not by sight. So it makes sense that faith would give way when we see Christ face to face. And in a way, it does. And the Bible says, who hopes for what he can see? Rather, we hope for what we cannot see. So it makes sense that hope will give way when we see Christ face to face, and it will in a sense. But in a more careful study, I, think, I don't think that that's the comparison that Paul's making here. It's not the comparison he's making here, just grammatically. The word now, in this summary, Verse applies to all three, faith, hope, and love. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, all three. So it's not saying faith and hope now, love later. No, all three abide together. So this is not a temporal now, but a logical now. So now, Paul says, having said all this, here's my final conclusion. So now, faith, hope, And love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. We we will continue to abide in faith and hope in God in the new heavens and the new earth. Although our faith and our hope will look a little different. We won't need faith to believe that God is real. Because we will see him face to face. But if we define faith as trust and reliance and dependence upon God, then we will still have faith in God. Because we will still need to trust the goodness of God and rely upon the sacrifice of Christ and depend upon the love of the Spirit for all of eternity. In that way, we will continue in faith in God always. And because God is the object of our faith, and because we will see Him face to face, our trust in Him will actually deepen. Our reliance upon Him will actually be more assured when we see Him. And our dependence in Him will be strengthened. In the same way, our hope will not go away, but it will be perfected as we gaze upon the wonderful face of him in whom we hope. You see, faith, hope, and love continue to abide still. The greatest, even of these three, is love. Because the goal, the end, is love. We have faith in God and Christ. We have hope in God and Christ. But God himself is love. You see the difference? And the new heaven and new earth is going to be a place of love. 
the place we're heading. So the way of us loving one another here in this life is the way that we will live together perfectly in Christ's kingdom. Our loving one another in this life is training and preparation for loving one another perfectly in the next life. So the defining mark of a person of the Spirit is love. And the way of living for the church is the way of love. It's easy to say. Not so easy to do. And so we must let go of our self-focus and practice the way of love in the church for our good and for Christ's glory. But can I say just, just a word to you who are outside of the church this morning? Those of you who, who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet you're hoping for the love of God. I know that because it's evidenced by your being here this morning. And I just want to I just want to pass on this one nugget of help to you that's in this passage. You will not be saved by your love for God. Because sometimes you might be reading this and coming here and thinking, I'm just going to try harder, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try to love God this day. You will not be saved by your love for God. You will only be saved by God's love for you. This is love. Not that we have loved him, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. Dear friend, the way to be forgiven of your sins and know God is not to try to love him more. It's to trust Christ. Place your trust in Christ. Rely upon his sin-atoning death on the cross in your place. Depend upon his life-giving resurrection from the dead. And you will be saved. This is how God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your spirit. And in your spirit, you have given us your love. That we might love others. We recognize this is your great gift of the spirit to us. We recognize it was accomplished and exhibited in Christ's sin-atoning death and life-giving resurrection. And Lord, we know that because of it, you are now patient and kind forbearing with us and that you are making us more loving people that you're making us more like Christ and all of these sound very very good to us and so we pray that you would continue to work in us preserve your church in the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace all for your glory we pray in Christ's name amen